Exodus, chapter 19, the whole chapter. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord, the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the people, told, told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. 
The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He continued, for that reason, the most important, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any person is not who they are at a given time or what they may say or do, but what they conceive God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that comprises the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Well, that principle, that what we think about God, both personally and as God's people, gets worked out through the history of the church as we see that there, we might say, there are two extremes in our view of God. For some, God is purely transcendent. That is to say that he is so different from us that we just cannot know him. He is majestic and holy and pure. But if that is all that we understand of God then Christianity can feel lifeless and abstract. And just having that idea of God tends to make Christians who are dry, lacking in warmth and in heart. At the other extreme, you have the view there's transcendence, then there is imminence. And that means that God is so very close and he is just like us. And so people who think of God in that way think of God as their friend alongside them, always accepting them, loving them, and close to them. And if that is all someone thinks, well then Christianity doesn't really become something that lifts us out of ourselves. Worship, well it becomes just like visiting a friend in your living room. And also it tends to form Christians who care very little for sin. Because we don't think there is any problem between us and the living God. Both those views of God contain truth, but neither is complete, because on their own, they're unbalanced. But the wonderful thing about Exodus 17, our passage we're going to look at together this morning, is that it brings out both those aspects of the nature of God, and in doing so, shows us what God is truly like. It teaches us that God is both holy and other, but also a God who draws near so that we can know him. And we're going to work through the passage together in three points. And the first is here that we see, first of all, that God draws near. And we must start here. That in the Bible, God tells us that God takes the initiative in coming to his people. Now, where have we been? It's, we've been a few weeks out of our series in Exodus. We've been working through the offices of a deacon and elder. And so as we jump back in, it's good to remind ourselves what has happened thus far. 
God's people have been rescued from Egypt. They've been traveling through the wilderness. A few weeks ago, they were there at Rephidim. But now they move on from Rephidim, and they come in chapter 19, having come out of Egypt on the way to the Promised Land, to what is known as the desert or wilderness of Sinai. And they come before this great mountain that we know as Mount Sinai. Now, Moses knows this place. He has been there before because this is where he met with God when God appeared to him in that burning bush. But at this place, God will draw near in coming down to meet with his people. God draws near. Now, that is very significant because at that time, the way people thought about God or their gods was that they were far off, that they were separated from people, that they lived in high places on mountains, but they never came down. It's not in the immediate area, but if we think about Greek mythology, if you know anything of Greek mythology, that is how they thought of the gods. They lived on Mount Olympus. They stayed on Mount Olympus, and that was how they were. But if gods are distant, if the one true and living God is distant, then, they are, then God is mysterious and unknowable. That is why back then people speculated. They built statues and idols to try and guess what God was like. And if they want to know what God thought, well, they visited oracles and priests. But ultimately, knowing God was just a guessing game. But notice here that in Exodus 17, that is not what goes on. God draws near, and he draws near in three ways. He draws near in revelation. Repeated phrase going through the passage is that Moses goes up the mountain. He goes up a number of times. It begins in verse 3, and he hears God speak. And then Moses is entrusted with a message from God to bring it to the people. So if you look at verse 6, He is commanded to bring these words to the Israelites. He's heard from God. If you look down at verse 9, Moses tells uh, that, sorry, the Lord tells Moses to speak with the people, that he will speak with Moses, and then Moses will bring that message to the people there in verse 9. And then if you look also at verse 21, we have a similar thing. Uh, God tells Moses to go down and speak to the people. So God is drawing near to his people. He is making himself known in revelation. And that is where we start because in recognizing this, we see that in God drawing near in this way, he saves us from speculation. You know, what would it be like if we didn't have a Bible? Have you thought about that? If you had no Bible to know what the one true and living God was like, what would it be like? Well, I guess we'd probably all sit in a circle and we'd share our own thoughts. But it would all be just opinion. And that's uh, not the case. God has made himself known. And that is why it's so important that perhaps, and maybe you've heard this at school, the great known illustration of the, the different religions going around the blindfolded elephant. Do you remember that one in RE? You know, in order to, to say, well, everyone has a little bit of the truth about God, and we all grasp different parts of it, and so we need to embrace, it is said, all these different views of God and put them all together. Is that true? No, it's not. It's not true because the one true and living God has made himself known in Revelation. 
And it's also not true because it doesn't work in practice. Because I put it to you, you could not form an elephant with all the variety of different views that people have about God. In fact, there is no creature that can be put together. It wouldn't exist because the ideas contradict and they don't hold together. And so, friends, that reminds us what a treasure we have in the Word of God. How God has blessed us in coming and drawing near in Revelation so that we don't need to speculate. We are not bringing together our collective ignorance. God has made himself known because God draws near in Revelation. But then also notice, God draws near in his rescue there in verse 4. Because the Lord says, you yourself have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That reminds us that the purpose of God's rescue from the Egyptians was not just to bring freedom to the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh. Do you notice it was for more than that as well? It was that God wanted to bring these people to himself. God acted. He did not remain distant. He reached out with his mighty hand. He he carried his people out of Egypt on eagles' wings. And he did that so that they might know him and belong to him. If you look at verses uh, 5 and 6, these are so precious where the Lord describes his people as his treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, you will be to me, the Lord says, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, those verses are so wonderful. We're going to come back to them next week. And we're going to unpack the very purpose of our salvation. And we'll see that it is both to save us eternally, but also that we might might bring glory to God and point to God. And we'll come to that in future weeks. We'll look at that detail later. But notice here that God is drawing near. He is taking the initiative in order to rescue. He comes in revelation. He comes in rescue. But then he also comes in condescension. Now, forgive the word, I couldn't find uh, a simpler one. It's particularly problematic because in our culture, when you hear the word condescension, we think negatively, don't we? We think that person was very condescending. It means they spoke to me in a certain way that wasn't very kind. That is not what we're saying here. What we're saying here is the great God of heaven is coming down positively onto this mountain so that he might be known. He is making his presence known to his people and he's doing it particularly through the physical phenomena that happened there on the mountain. Now, whilst God is everywhere, God is doing something particularly symbolic here in Exodus 19. He is taking the initiative in drawing near so that he can be known. And friends, going back to those two different extremes of how people think of God, that is the problem with pure transcendence. If you purely have this high view of God that might be reflected in your worship and in your architecture and everything else, and then your worship just becomes about the otherness and the majesty of God, well, then you're missing something, aren't you? You're missing that God draws near. You're missing that that means that we can know God in a real and personal way. 
And so, friends, the wonder of the Christian faith, the wonder of God's word, is that God makes the first move. Other religions tell us to reach up to God. The human heart thinks, I need to climb up to God to make myself good enough. But this one true God draws near. He comes down to meet with his people. And we need that. Because unless God makes the first move, there is no hope. So striking that in that astonishing and well-known sermon in Acts 17, when Paul is there in Athens speaking to him about the one true and living God, what does he emphasize at one point in verse 27? He says, God is not far from any one of us. And we need to grasp that in all the hope it gives and also capture something of that in how we think of what we are doing as we come together to worship as the Lord's people. That there should be that right sense of excitement and wonder that the God of heaven is drawing near and that Christ Jesus especially promises to draw near as we gather together physically to worship him as the Lord's people. There is so much that competes for our time in this world. There are fast-paced computer games. There are brief and punchy videos on social media. There's the thrill of sports. There's on-demand TV where you can watch a whole range of things. But friends, we must remind ourselves that as we come together as God's people, especially to meet with him as the living God, Whilst that may seem ordinary and uninspiring, it isn't. There is something astonishing that is happening. The God of heaven is drawing near. And that means there is nothing that we would rather do. There is nothing greater than coming to know this God and drawing near to him as his people through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder, friends, is that what you hunger for and pray for personally? To meet with the one true and living God. God draws near. But what happens when God draws near? And here we come to our second point. We see that the God who draws near is a God who is holy. Our second point, God is holy. Because when God comes down... We come to see his purity and his otherness. Now the people are told that God is coming down to the mountain and they are going to see something of the character of God, not in the sense that they will see God physically, but in the things that are going to happen there on this mountain, they are going to understand God's character by observing all that is going on. So whilst in Scripture God's appearance is never described, we learn about his character and who he is in these elements that come together when he draws near. So let's look at them. They're there in verses 10 to 15. There is a a sense of the holiness of God in how the people prepare for the day. And it's two days of preparation when they're told it's coming. And then there's also that sense of the holiness of God on the day itself. So let's think about the preparation 
in verses 10 to 14, as we see the holiness of God here, Moses is told by the Lord to go to the people and consecrate them them today and tomorrow. They are to get ready to meet with God. And we think this consecration is probably a sacrifice. And as in part of the preparation, they are to wash their clothes. End of verse 10, they are to be ready to meet with God. And then in verses 12 and 13, they are to put markers around this mountain to stop the people or the animals from touching this mountain where God is drawing near. And then in verse 15, they are to have no sexual relations. And that's not because those relations are sinful or unspiritual, but it's to highlight the uniqueness of this moment when other lawful pleasures are not to be enjoyed. So before the day, there is this two days of preparation in verses 10 to 15. Then you get to the day itself in verses 16 to 19. You have the thunder and the lightning in verse 16 that signifies that God is here. You have this thick cloud covering all of the mountain, it seems, which is symbolic of the glory of God coming down. So the thunder and the lightning, the thick cloud, and then what they've, what they've seen, what do they hear? Well, they hear the trumpet blasts, end of verse 16, the instruments of majesty. And then as they look at the mountain in verse 18, there is fire on this mountain. Speaking of God's holiness, think of the fire that was there in Exodus 3 with the burning bush. And then smoke rises up from this mountain. Verse 18. It's an astonishing thing. Perhaps the phrase there of this smoke going up, uh, smoke from a furnace, makes us think back to Sodom and Gomorrah where God came in judgment. It was the same kind of phrase about the smoke rising up. A sign of God coming in his holiness. So the preparations before the day point to the holiness and the the, the otherness of God, the, the, the things they observe and see and hear, and I guess smell and all the other things of the day, point to the holiness of God. And in light of all that, we can understand the end of verse 16, can't we? That everyone there coming in the camp trembles, and such is the moment that the end of verse 18, the mountain mirrors the hearts of the people. Because whilst the people tremble, verse 16, the end of verse 18, the whole mountain trembles violently. This is the God of the Bible, friends. A God who is holy and pure. And we are not like this God. We are not like this God in our being as creatures And we are not like this God in our fallen nature as sinners. And this sense of the holiness and the purity and the the otherness of God, well, it's, it's been lost in our day, hasn't it? How is it people think of God? Well, they think of God as the man upstairs, as perhaps the gentle grandfather. It's a danger among Christians as well. We are not, I think, in danger of overdoing the holiness and the purity of God. We are more in danger of forgetting it. But our God is holy. He is three times holy, a consuming fire. He speaks and the earth trembles. 
And friends, if you want to recapture something of that sense of the holiness of God, read the Psalms. Read the Psalms as you see all of the the greatness of God and you'll recapture it very quickly. Now before we think about what that means for us in our nature, let's think about what that means of, of the greatness of drawing near to this God. Because actually seeing the the moral purity and the, and the greatness and the beauty and the holiness of this God, well, it is appealing, isn't it? It's attractive. It lifts us out of ourselves. It saves us from being introverted because this God is great and holy and mighty. I don't know about you, but so much of this life can feel skin deep, a facade that can be quickly seen as such. A bit like visiting a theme park. You know when you go and as you look on the outside, everything seems so magical. And then you go and you start to touch things and you look behind the scenes and you realize it's all fake and fabricated. Our world is crying out for something of substance, something of greatness, something of glory. And the God of the Bible has un- ending depth in his purity, in his holiness, and in his majesty. But God's holiness and purity has profound implications for how we approach him. And we see that pictured in how Moses is told to set things up around the mountain. So if you look at verses 12 and 13, those solemn verses reminding the people if if they touch the mountain, they are to be put to death and put to death in ways that they will not be touched by others. And that's reminding us that the light of God's holiness exposes the sin of our hearts. I really love light. I love well-lit spaces. I like to work in good light, to read in good light, to fix things in good light, because light helps you to see the details. But friends, God's holiness exposes the details of our lives. Everything before him is laid bare. He sees through every barrier that you might put up. He sees into the parts of your hearts and your lives that you think have locked away. There are no secrets from the living God. And this means that the closer you come to this God the more you understand of your sin. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith is that as believers mature in godliness and in knowing more of this God, we actually become even more aware of our sin. And sometimes mature believers struggle with this initially because they say, well, why is it? Is it I'm becoming more sinful? I don't think that's normally what's happening. What's happening is you're knowing more of God. And the light of the greatness and the glory and the purity of this God is shining more and more upon your heart and you're seeing more and more of what's going on there. It's astonishing that C.S. Lewis uh, spoke of Christianity by saying Christianity is not a comfortable religion. He said, I did not go to Christianity or religion, he, he describes it, to make me happy. If I wanted to be happy, I could have gone to a bottle of port. If you want religion to make you feel comfortable, 
I do not recommend Christianity, he said. It's not comfortable to see more of our sin, to see more of ourselves and our problems. But it's true. And as we come to see what it means, it is glorious as we see the way that we can approach this God. But before we get to that, what is the solution? How is it we can know this God? Because if we're really honest, I think deep down we all know that one day we will stand before this living God. I was struck by an article this week in The Telegraph that was reporting the outcome of the Worldview Survey of King's College London. And they were surveying millennials and Gen Z. And the report was that whilst millennials and Generation Z are less likely to be religious, about half as likely as previous generations, they are almost twice as likely to believe in hell and the afterlife than previous generations. So the summary was that whilst organized religion in all its forms is in decline, belief in something beyond death is holding strong and even getting stronger. So my question is this, friends. The God who has drawn near and has shown you that he is holy, how are you going to stand before him? We're not certain of the site about Sinai, but on one possible site, there is a monastery. And there's an author who wrote a book about walking different places in the Bible, and he was describing how he walked up Mount Sinai, guided by one of the monks. They were talking about all that had potentially happened on that site, if that indeed was the site. And what the monk commented on how the Israelites in Exodus 19 were terrified of all they saw and experienced. And so the author asked the guide this question, how do we justify climbing up this mountain today? In other words, how do we come and meet this God? The monk responded, in ancient times, a monk would be sitting at the top of the path as you climbed up. And just before you got to the peak, they would hear your confession and make sure you were spiritually prepared to go up. And so he said, that is how we justify this. We come to the monastery, we purify ourselves, and then we ascend. Has that monk got it right? Well, he's grasped the moral purity and the holiness of God. But what do you think of their solution, friends? Could any actions ever cleanse us deeply enough to make us ready to meet this God? How many hours of confession would we need? How many days? Friends, if we're honest, there is no spiritual soap that can cleanse us as deeply as we need to cleanse ourselves if we try and do it ourselves because our sin is too great. And there is no spiritual knife that will come in and cut out what is wrong and unholy and sinful because so deep is the corruption of our nature, we have no hope ourselves of drawing near. But the great news, and here's our third point, is that God has provided a mediator. Now, what is a mediator? A mediator is someone 
who stands between you and somebody else, someone who bridges the gap. And here in the ministry of Moses, we see God providing a mediator that points us forward to an even greater Moses who was to come. Let's see it together. Three times Moses goes up and down the mountain going to the Lord and then bringing a a message from the Lord to the people and in sometimes a people's response. He, He further mediates by being the one who consecrates the people in verse 14 to to make them ready. And then we read later on in the chapter that he was leading the people, verse 17, out of the camp to meet with God. So he's this picture of this one who will bring us to God. But there is always a limit to Moses' mediation. Because whilst he can bring the word of God to the people, he cannot deal with the sin problem in the hearts of the people. And that is their greatest need, to have fellowship, to know this one true God. And not only is it their need, it is your need and my need. Because true life is found in knowing this God. So how can we ascend? That was a great question that the Israelites thought about again and again and again. It's a question that's picked up in Psalm 15. I'll just read it to you as it picks up this idea of ascending to meet with God. Psalm 15, we read, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain? Well, who can ascend? Who can go there? The one whose way of life is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others who despises a vile person, who honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. So that's the criteria, friends, to ascend to the mountain of the Lord, to know this God and its total perfection as we saw in what Simeon was teaching us in the bite-sized truth spots. But God's word tells us that whilst no Israelite could meet that criteria themselves, there was one who came, a perfect Israelite, a perfect man who met the criteria. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. God's word tells us that we can ascend because Christ has come to be our perfect mediator. He is the one who has lived that pure life of Psalm 15 who has therefore known that close fellowship with God. And he is the one who has died for our sins so that with him we can ascend that mountain. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, there is an amazing contrast that the author draws between two mountains. He contrasts Mount Sinai. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, contrasts Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is the mountain in Exodus 19, and Mount Zion is a picture of how we know God in Christ today and in heaven to come. Let me read you how it's described in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. Notice all the echoes in Exodus 19. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, And that is burning with fire, 
to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even an animal touches a mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That's Exodus 19. But now we come to Mount Zion, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Friends, Mount Sinai is a mountain of darkness and gloom and storm, but Mount Zion is a mountain of joyful assembly. Mount Sinai is a place of fear and trembling, but Zion is a place of welcome and peace and security. Mount Sinai says, stay away. Mount Zion says, draw near. Because Mount Sinai is a place with sinful people, and Mount Zion is a place for those made perfect. So the question is, friends, this. What has changed? Has God changed? No, he hasn't. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Has the human condition changed? Well, no, we are sinners in nature and our actions. But verse 24 is what has changed. Because we come to Mount Zion by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who mediates a better covenant. And that means we can come to this joyful mountain. We can come to this mountain that says, welcome, peace and security, that says, draw near. And why can we come? Because our present sin doesn't hold us back because it's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And our flawed plast does not disqualify us because we have Jesus' life credited to us. And so, friends, the way is open and the path is clear. You do not need to even walk. You just need to look by faith. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to him by faith. Come and know this great God who draws near personally today. Maybe you have spent your whole life trying to be good enough to climb the mountain. You can't. Stop trying and look to Jesus. Maybe you've spent your whole life in spiritual despair, thinking you are never good enough for God, and you're not friends. But Christ is. Christ was, and he makes you ready to ascend. And so, friends, come to Jesus for the first time today and come every day. And come with confidence because you come through him. I love the words of Hebrews chapter 10. We close with these in verse 22. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart 
and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near in Christ. Amen.